Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. So you went through Trinity. Yeah. Um, you didn't just go through Trinity. You were the president of the students' union. I was. And out of that, you were elected to Shannon. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience? Maybe your first few days in the Shannon. Were you confident going in there, or did confidence grow as you went along? Yeah, I think um, I've always been quite good at, f- at faking for a period of time until yeah. it feels natural, you know. So people are always quite shocked when they realise that I've probably spent a couple of months having to like you know like being a bit exhausted after a few months because i've been like mentally kind of focused on going i'm grand at this i'm good at this and i nobody can really tell that i'm like scared or you know and um i suppose in trinity the first time i felt i felt quite scared was the getting up and talking and asking for votes like Um, i was like why why how can i ask somebody to vote for me it nearly felt like um shame mm. and i'm like why do i feel shame asking someone to vote for me and it was like asking people to have like confidence in me to believe in me to and it all to be honest a part of me was trying kind of rejecting that and i was kind of like i'm a fucking idiot like mm. i mean why are you asking yeah. anyone for that for you don't fucking even need to do that you know what i mean yeah, so yeah. it's like it's like i was asking them for something for nothing like you know what me hand out or something and it was an election and everyone else bigging themselves up and, and I'm like oh, what's wrong with me I'm struggling with this and I had never publicly spoke to that many people like because it could be anything from like 400 people in a lecture hall you know yeah. and um, I remember being rattling inside and after the first day my campaign manager who was from Crumlin and came through the access program with me there was only about three of us in the campaign by the end of it everyone had dropped their candidates and joined their campaign but at the start like um i was i i would i would literally my stomach i would have to run for days at the thought of even oh god i have to go and talk now and i have pains up my neck and um and then the second day third day i think it was into the campaign there's like this big kind of speech out on the dining hall steps and um it's out in front square and rob said right let's go over your speech and i says no i'm just i'm just gonna go tell it on the and he's like, I don't know what that means. And I'm like, I'm just going to go tell it on them. Like, I'm just going to go community worker and tell it on them. At the end of the day, this is a community, isn't it? Like, aspirations are aspirations. And whether you're, whether you're, you know, whether you're upper class or working class, there is certain things that people want. Mm. And I just need to, I just need to go up and, 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 and talk about that. And I went up and I just 
dropped the idea of having to try and talk about these policies or what I was going to do for Trinity or da 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 and I just spoke about community and I spoke about equality and diversity and inclusion and what that means and and that just spoke to so many people because whether you were disabled or you know whether whether like whether you had a disability whether you were you know on the autism spectrum or whether you were a migrant student or whether you were you know there because you traveled from some other European country to be there there was something about in the in the speech that I gave that kind of pulled everybody in which was really quite empowering Mm. so that was the kind of most frightened I felt was the first day or two before I kind of just relaxed and was me I Mm. think I was rejecting who I was the first two days trying to sound like the other candidates or something and that made me feel really ill Mm. um and then when I went into the senate that was that was it was hard it was actually harder than going into trinity for some reason because it's so much more concentrated and there's cameras on you all the time um, I didn't know if I could stop coursing uh, for long enough to actually do a speech. Yeah. Um, I didn't know how I was going to um, dress. Yeah, I, I, you like I've seen you on the channel before wearing your yeah. Air Max and yeah. you know, showing your tattoos, yeah. which is fantastic. Yeah. You know? I definitely but had to push is, that, you know. Yeah, is it a hard yeah. thing to do that? Like, Yeah, it was because people are commenting on the first day yeah, or two. They're so used to a particular... Like, a suit is not my uniform, do you know what I mean? And yeah. I kind of think, like people wearing suits that's okay they're comfortable in that but like the idea that people should wear suits and work or women should wear particular types of kind of work looking dresses or trouser suits where did that even where did that come from like you know it's not it's not what i wear on a day-to-day basis it's not what i wear and what i'm comfortable in and you know i really had to push back against that and i arrived in my first day to speak in the shannon now we'd been in for a while while the program government was being but i arrived in like this it was really sunny and i arrived in this little like summer dress with all my tattoos out but i had it was quite short as well so it meant all my leg tattoos were shown as well (laughs) so i was just like just fucking go in and embrace it and there was a couple of comments and you can see like that people are just not used to it in there you know and um i think but it kind of got it got they got used to it, um you know and I had I had I remember telling the story before but I had like this reoccurring dream dream for about two or three nights that I bought this like Tommy Hilfiger suit in Grafton Street and I was like navy and it's not something I would wear like mm-hmm. and uh, in the dream I kept putting it on and going in to speak for my maiden speech in the Shannon. And I kept turning into Mickey Mouse fleecy pajamas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> every time I stood up to speak, and I'd run back to the office to try and put the suit back on. Yeah. But every time I spoke, and this kept happening, and I was like, and that was kind of like the sign to me, Jesus, Lynn, is there something subconscious going on here? Yeah. Are you afraid to speak? You know, are you afraid that you're going to stand yeah. out or your accent? Sometimes I get words completely wrong, yeah. you know, and I've had to embrace that. You know, at first I used to get embarrassed, like when someone would try and correct me word, where now I just say, yeah did you know what i meant so like fuck off like exactly. why are you correcting me for like do you know what i mean yeah. so now i had to work hard to embrace that that my dialect and um go do you know what there's some words that i say that you know the meaning of i know the meaning of i say them differently you know and uh, i'm not going to reject that part of me you know yeah. and um but what's funny is like you know seb me assistant would write um speeches for me sometimes like if i if i'm too busy or if i it's not a subject that i feel that i can do justice to just speak and um like just just um ad lib on he would he would write but sometimes he puts in words and i'm like i get to it in the middle of the speech and i go oh my god <laughs> my buddy jumped in he goes Jared's doing this all his life 
I knew exactly what he meant because I've always tried to help people mm. along the way before I even got into the therapy. And going back about 15 years ago then, um, I just something inside me said that I, I need to do something more because I had this unbelievable desire to really, really make a difference in people's lives. Mm. And um, I started studying um, like I never studied before, to be honest with you. Mm. And um, I absolutely loved it. And I'm still studying today. I'm learning so much more besides what I'm actually doing as a therapist now mm. to be the best that I can be to make such a profound difference in people's lives. Do you think the the karate, um, I'd say the karate helped because, you know, I think, you know, like for um, Shaolin monks, mm-hmm. they have that martial arts, kung fu, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But they also have the spiritual side of it, the side where they keep themselves grounded and humble and centered. Mm-hmm. Do you have that in karate as well? Yeah, you're dead right. Yeah. You're dead mm-hmm. right. In fact, I've, I've known of, a, of another few um, martial artists that went into the, the healing fraternity, you could say, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's something about it. And, um, you know, I was, posed, I was asked a question once, Joe, you were talking about spirituality. What's the difference between um, religion and spirituality? Well, I said, uh, are the religious men and the spiritual men? Well, I said, uh, the religious men uh, fears dying and going to hell. The spiritual men has already been there. Mm. Mm. It's true. So true, really. True life's experiences mm. is what you learn. Yeah, and you, going back to what you said there, we'll go, myself and James have done a few sessions with you there lately mm. as well, and we both had our own experiences. I haven't been really speaking to James about my own, but my experience, which I like, as you know, has been profound, really, is after helping me an awful lot. Um, to, to, to go deep into my own past, my childhood, and, and other shit that's going on in my life, you know. And uh, it's, it's massive, you know. But I have a piece here, right? And it's the story of you helping somebody in a different situation, mm-hmm. right? And I'm going to read it, if that's okay. okay. Yeah, that's fine, that's fine. On Wednesday, the 11th of July, I spoke to a very dis- distressed member of staff who during the conversation said they wanted to slit their wrists. I convinced him to come into the meeting room for an informal chat. Myself and Joe Murphy sat down with him, listened and offered assistance in the form of STS's in-house supports. That's the company That's the supports. Company, yeah, yeah. He was in a very, very dark place and vis- he was disturbed. Joe mm. Thor, Joe O'Brien, which is yourself, who has experience in this field with the person's consent, Joe rang Joe, who promptly came to the meeting room. We explained the situation and then bought... Myself and Joe left the meeting room to allow Jor proceed with his therapy techniques. After some time, Jor called us back into the meeting room and we sat down again for a chat. We found the person in tot- the person in question totally transformed for the person we had before us in the morning. We did not witness the therapy applied, but were truly astounded with the results. He had brought this person back from the brink brink of suicide we are very grateful for the therapy given by Jor to a serious situation to which we found ourselves ill-equipped to handle the person in question was back to work the following day and hasn't looked back can you explain what you actually done for that person on that day okay, and how distressed they were 
it's great that you've brought this up actually yeah. Tim to be honest and I'm, I'm grateful for that because yeah. it's a very very important topic yeah. and um, I was actually on site um, on a major pharmaceutical plant in Cork there were several hundred men on it okay and um, I'd given several talks over three days several talks a day to hundreds of construction workers on mental health and well-being and the feedback I was getting was absolutely profound now I was working on site, but I was trying to promote myself as a speaker at the time to go to construction sites and companies to speak about what I do and the benefits of, of what I do, how I could instill it in people that could make a big difference in their lives. Mm. So I'd given the talks and the company were aware that of what I had done and I was back working on site. I was in my gear, PPS and everything, mm. right? And I got a phone call off one of the directors from the company and I went into into the guys and the two of them were, were very, very shook. They met me at the door and they said, we've a serious situation here. He wants to take his own life. This gentleman, let's call him John, not his real name. And we'd become really good friends after this. Mm. And um, I went in and this guy was literally on his knees. Um, he was traumatised. He was in bits. He was, he was crying uncontrollably. No, lads, I don't care how tough you are. No, obviously I, I had to compose myself, but... When you look at another human being, especially a grown man, and he's literally on his hands and knees and he's in bits, it's a tough one mm. not to pull on your heartstrings. I'll tell you that now for nothing, okay? Now, to witness that, everything starts to go through your mind. But I know what I was doing. I'm trained at this. So I went in. Three of us were in the room then at this point, And they said, um, will you be able to sort this out here? Will we get onto this company and that company and get somebody else to... You can do whatever you want. They said, this needs to be addressed now. Because he was saying that, it, as I was talking to those guys, I want to take my own life. And um, I went over and I just put my hand on his shoulder. And I said, uh, what's your name, bud? He told me his name. I said, look, I can help you this morning. I said, if you allow me to. And he just nodded. So I said, I'll take care of this to the two lads. And they said, you're anything you need, just come out to us, whatever. So I spent three and a half hours with him inside in the room. And I, I performed EFT on him, with him. We spoke about lots of things. Now, what, I, what I'm going to say here, okay, is anybody can go through something like this in their lives. And what happened with this gentleman was there was a culmination of many factors over many situations, circumstances and events, mostly negative in his past life mm. that had brought him to his knees, okay? Now, this could have happened on an aeroplane, it could have happened in Marbella on his holidays, walking down Patrick Street. It hit him like a ton of bricks, okay? The volcano erupted, just couldn't take any more. So the culmination of many factors came up and he broke down uncontrollably. So we spoke about many things that had happened in his life, a lot of, an awful lot of trauma. And we dealt with every, every single thing that came up in those three and a half hours. And um, he was perfect after that. Mm -hmm. So I went out and I asked the two guys to come in. And when they came in, then there's, and it's not like when I'm talking about this story, there's, there's no ego here or nothing. I'm just, no, I'm just telling you a yeah. story, you know what yeah. I mean? And yeah. um, I was just so happy that I was able to help him. But mm. the two lads just couldn't believe the difference in him, you know? And um, yeah. he, uh, he gave me a big hug and uh, there was no more crying that it stopped. Mm. And he was back and work the following day. What was actually going on for him in terms of, the physical side, right? We talk about, we just spoke about the trauma. Mm -hmm. 
he he had a lot of energy, obviously trapped within his emotional mm-hmm. state. Yeah, and you were able to work in him, yeah. and to get him to talking, and and for him to connect with his, his mm. subconscious, and and tap, and just for him to release that trapped energy that's yeah. that's given him so much problems, and mm. and. Uh, not allowing him to continue with his life yeah. in the best way he, he, he can and should. Absolutely. Their children had been trafficked in, the, in, in Ireland in the 50s and 60s and even in the 70s to Americans and Australians. Um, so I, I, I think there's, there must have been good stories amidst all that. There must have been kindly people. Mm, of course. Uh, because I'm, I, I'm convinced that 90% of human beings are... In, you know, ultimately kind, yeah. decent, and want to do the right thing in Bertha Commons. Yeah. And you were saying um, off camera that your mother was from um, Summerhill. In no, my, my my grandmother. Your grandmother. Yeah. So yeah. It's yeah. from inner city. Yeah. And it's not that your mother wanted to give you up. It was just at that time, if you weren't married, this was the dilemma yes. you were put into. Yeah, my mother was my father's secretary. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, from what I can work out her parents were probably the most ferociously reacting to what happened mm. and I think she was kind of ostracized uh, I'm not I mean I don't really know the facts but I, I gather her mother w- was absolutely appealed her father was appalled because um, the shame of it the shame the of the whole thing in in, in you know in in Renla in, in Dublin and it was where where they she grew up uh, and my grandmother was a difficult woman anyway, you know, and I, I often I say in the book, you know, difficulty makes people difficult. You know, I think that's a very important yeah. idea for for uh, for a Samaritan like me. You know, before you leap to, to, to judgment, remember where people are coming from. You know, my own grandmother had come from the tenements in Gardner Street in Dublin at the turn of the last century. Her father was a veteran of the Crimea, the, the, the Indian Army, uh, Khartoum. And I'm certain he had post-traumatic stress disorder and was a kind of a, an over-drinking uh, military mm-hmm. vet. And I, I, I believe he tried to throw her down the stairs, that kind of thing in the tenements. Uh, so it was all kicking off. And I'm sure there was terrible poverty. This was the stuff of, of Sean O'Casey yeah. and, you know, the, star, the Plough and the Stars. I, I often think that those plays must have described what my my grandmother grew up in because they actually recognised Sean O'Casey. They, my, my mother rep- remembers my, her mother saying, look, there's, there's Mr O'Casey there. You know, they'd see him in a shop in, in, the, in the area. Um, it would so, be like Norfolk Cork people uh, and, and people not from Dublin. If you think of like, um, do you know the Western Road where you mm-hmm. have old houses, you know, maybe three or four stories high. But if you think of those buildings and in each room there's a separate family with all the kids and they all share that big house, mm-hmm. that's kind of what the tenements used to be like. The tenements were once upon a time the homes of the aristocracy and the members of Parliament for Dublin and, and the country. They were like the great houses of Knightsbridge and Chelsea. And when the Act of Union of about 1800 came in, all of them decamped to London and, all, and the houses fell into dereliction and they had kind of rack rent le- uh, landlords. And the, as you say, they used to put whole families into individual rooms, like a room that would have been a, a dressing room or, a, mm. or a, a, a parlour or something. Suddenly it became a home for eight, nine, ten people. It was, I mean, it's astounding sort of stuff. Mm. And you see pictures, and I remember actually them from the 60s and 70s in Dublin myself as a boy, York Street, beside the College of Surgeons now. I remember the, the, uh, the lines and the, and the laundry hanging out of the windows mm. and the, the barefoot kids wandering around, you know, Moore Street. 
I mean, there was a, a great number of slums and tenements in Dublin in the 60s and 70s when I grew up. Mm. And all the, the women in the Barrows and Moore Street uh, and right down uh, Henry Street, they, they were incredibly poor people. They were, the, they were the last generation of those slum dwellers. Mm. Uh, so my, my grandmother grew up in, in that kind of context. And I suspect that she never wanted to look back at all that, and that's why she was so difficult. Yeah. How does it? How does a guy that grew up in in that kind of situation in, in a, an orphanage go on then to study medicine? Well, we're going to find out now. Aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> like it, because, like it, it, listening to your backstory, I'm I'm sitting here like, and you're a doctor and everything else, and uh, I'm because there might be a perception that yeah you know, see where we come from consultants and doctors are that all is the that is the beginning kids. of life yeah. for a lot of us yeah. it, homes and things like that and we go on into prisons and, and drug addiction but your story is so different you know well here's the thing tim i believe i was um uh, the blessed recipient of good luck good yeah. luck uh like you have to remember that the whole of irish society was in these orphanages Mm. from the very top to the very bottom. Okay. So you had letter fracks, yeah? These terrible places where boys were brutalised and killed, mm. or Bespera, and people, or tomb, right? And, and babies ending up in pits and, and yeah. you know. And then on the other end, you had people in the upper middle classes where there was still scandal and shame, and they were put into more, slightly more middle classes mm. places. So... From what I understand and have learned and learned more and more is that, you know, there were lots of children that were put in and out of these orphanages, mm-hmm. inverted commas orphanages, because I don't think that most of the kids in there were orphans. I think most of them were taken from their children, yeah, yeah. from their mothers. They weren't and handed fathers. up. Like. So they weren't mm. actually orphans. That's another thing you had to remember. They were often tra- trafficked mm. to childless couples in America or Australia or Britain or even Ireland, yeah. you know. There were middle-class uh, families in Ireland, I think, who got some of these children as orphans, but they weren't orphans. Unlike a lot of the people, kids that you would have been in the orphanage, with, you ended up back with your mum. Yeah, because I, my mother was... See, one of the other things, because one of the other lucky things was my mother was 40 when she had me, mm. which was unbelievably unusual. Like nowadays, it's very common for women to have their first child at 35. That's quite normal now. But back then, in, 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 it, people would have been in their late teens, early 20s, having children. So my mother was 20 years older than most mothers, uh, something which I felt throughout my life, actually, interesting, because my mother was a kind of an elderly woman, yeah. I thought. I always thought she was very elderly. Yeah. And that was a kind of source of grief to me, because all the other mothers seemed to be young and glamorous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, my mother was really experienced and worldly-wise. So she'd worked for years. Mm. She was a single, working mother. She knew what was going on. So I think, and she had friends and connections, so even though there was a lot of scandal and shame, she had enough friends and support at work. Uh, and she was working in Guinness, mm. you know. And Guinness was, at one point, I believe, uh, the biggest employer in Dublin. At least it was said, there was legend had it that in around about 1900, that about a quarter of the entire population of Dublin relied on a Dublin income. My, uh, that doesn't mean that they were all working for it, but it just meant that if you had a, one member of the family in Guinness, such was the, the, the benevolence of Guinness, they were such a great employer that, that three, four, five other people could live off that income. Timmy alluded to there as well. Um, you know, you had tremendous amount of tragedy with the passing of your two yeah, kids. Yeah. You know, if not for people that are watching, that would be able to have been through similar experiences. 
what kind of kept you going or what did you do to kind of try, try to move past it and do you know was there any kind of was it exercise family friends yeah i just said look first of all i'd say i'm always i was always very reluctant to talk about it in I one know. way uh, yeah. because uh, we've kept it private as a family yeah. Yeah. Uh, and i found it very difficult in the beginning anyway to be honest uh, without getting into difficulty very quickly if you're talking about it because we we lost rory um at five weeks from the cot death uh, 1999 and then lena um w- w- with a heart condition um um in 2010 yeah. um and so but i have learned of late that people do respond to do. what did you do kind of thing and we yeah. all share the same experiences actually that's yeah. what you learn um and um so recently i did do an article with jen hogan in the irish times which I didn't expect a response. Yeah. And it mainly was from people who've gone through similar traumas. Mm. And just to answer your question, really, it, it takes time, first of all. Mm-hmm. Um, the immediate period afterwards is awful, you know. But we had two kids at the time when Rory died. And I always say they pulled us through because you have to get up. Like yeah. You simply have to get up, yeah. get them breakfast, yeah. play with them, you know. Uh, and, and therefore, um, and I remember at the time as, as much education, and I was didn't know what I was going to do you know because yes. mm-hmm. it, it's a jolt it's it undermines all your certainties in life um so I think exercise you said it there uh, is very important uh, and I often wonder you know I'm kind of people laugh at me you know because I walk so fast you know mm-hmm. uh, and they, they can't keep up and Mary's laughing <laughs> there, was a, there, was a, there was a funny episode during COP26 um <laughs> The, the, the climate change conference in Glasgow and, and uh, like the British security force they've got two policemen kind of following you like and so I get out of the hotel and I just literally go for it you know or, or somewhere else and I just literally down the road because I want to get mad for the exercise yeah, my yeah. father had that two years ago yeah. and, and the man apparently is chasing after me <laughs> <laughs> and by the time he gets to the hotel room like he's gone like oh, <laughs> he's in deep trouble yeah. uh, so <laughs> I think the walking uh, is the is the key to me and uh, I read that too subsequently yeah. that you do need to get out nature is a great healer it is. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I love walking uh, and I walk with friends now we, you know and it keeps you fit as well mm. um, and um, work is important getting back to routine mm-hmm. um, a good friend of mine Charlie O'Connor who was a TD and, and counsellor some years back he lost his son and I remember going up to him and we had a chat and we, I just said, Charlie, like it was in the middle of the, the last local elections and he was one of I said, just don't canvas or anything, but the people will vote you in. But you probably need that council experience later on. You'll need routine in your life. Yeah. Now it sounds very boring, but you do need routine yeah. Yeah. And, and getting back to some order uh, and you keep going. It, it never goes away. Yeah. Mm. You, you'll never forget, but mm. you just, you've got to pick yourself up in life there's you, you know give yourself time to, gr- to, to give that grieving process a bit of time you, know, you do and look yeah. Mary would say you know, there's, 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 every person will approach it a bit differently yeah. There's, yeah. there's no kind of model to say to people this is how you cope you yeah. know there's, there's coping mechanisms that will work for some people that won't work for, for others I think in, in, in any type of recovery whether it be recovering from a traumatic event like mm-hmm. that or recovering from addiction or child abuse or whatever like that having a bit of structure to your day mm-hmm. can only help you you know because it does keep you busy it gives you something to get up for um but at the same time there's no harm in just lying there too if that's what you need to do on that day yeah. do you know yeah. what yeah. i mean yeah. like don't yeah. judge like people be at home and they feel like oh but i can't don't judge yourself don't be too hard on yourself give yourself a break and allow yourself mm-hmm. time do you know yeah. and a big part of this podcast is around like 
people like share and you know hardships and how they've come through mm. you know because it does inspire others and it does give no, hope and I think it's okay to cry like it oh, is. We, we keep need to tell people that like and and, mm. and, uh, and don't bottle it up you know like I was lucky I think our, our families were fantastic mm. uh, my, my brothers sisters-in-laws uh, yeah. they were superb and they gave us great support uh, and community yeah. Um, friends like you know they, they all rallied and that helps like, mm. there's no doubt about that you know that's um, brilliant, that's brilliant. Uh, just that a thing. quick story I remember my mother was after dying when I was in the, the Midlands prison you know she she died by suicide and I was inside and I was in, in an awful state at the time I was I was wasn't long off alcohol and drugs and um, this will tell you, you know how trauma informed you are inside there I was in a bad way, you know, I had a lot of guilt and stuff. I was about ten, nine, ten months away at alcohol and drugs and my relationship at the time, my mother wasn't great because I was going through a lot of therapy in the prison uh, r- related to my own trauma as a child. And the prison officer comes up to me and I was in bits and he says, but you have to get over and stop crying. <laughs> I looked at him and I had to talk in my throat, no, yeah. from crying like, and I just said, what the fuck? I yeah. can't, I said to him, because I was so, I was so traumatised. I just said, I can't, I, I really can't. And uh, it, it just it just brought me back w- when you were saying, like, crying is the most important. That's the old school And it helped way, me so much, like, yeah. that that period, like, just crying in the cell. Helped me that must have been an extraordinary days. experience for you, though. Unbelievable. To be in prison when that happened, like... In yeah, and to be yeah. going through early recovery as well yeah, you know yeah. I was going through a lot of a lot of difficulties as well I was I had a lot of shame and guilt as well yeah. from, from my actions during um, yes yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, during my time I, I was involved in, in drinking drugs and crime and stuff like that and and like that's one thing you do get when you stop that lifestyle is you get a massive con- conscience and okay. I'm upset I'd be a sensitive person as well and, and all that stuff just came back I just had a lot of, you know, there's a lot of shame around a lot of the stuff, but um, that's what happened. And after a while, I would have had this fighter mentality because of my upbringing, you know, having yep. to fight and, yeah. you know, being the oldest and being, uh, my mother being a single parent, I had a, and I couldn't surrender into the way I was feeling and just accept the way I was feeling, you know, because you, oh, you can't cry, you have to be a hard boy, you know, if yeah, someone yeah, sees yeah. you, you'll be vulnerable, <laughs> they'll take advantage of you. And after a while, it took me a long time, long haul, to really surrender and just stop and through years of meditation and just, it's okay to feel the way you feel, you know, and it's okay, okay to cry. Yeah, yeah. And that's just a little bit of a story. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. Thank I you. Said yeah, I needed yeah. to share that. No, the, yeah. One of the good things about COVID is in prisons, they have their, uh, they have access to the internet now too, because the video calls and lower visits, but they can get YouTube in the prison cell. And our podcast is streamed into the prison cells. Was it? And mm-hmm. we've recorded a couple of podcasts in Limerick Prison with a female in the library. And with a traveller guy in Cork Prison in the school. And we're doing a, a part of a series with prisoners, you know what I mean? So, Great. like, yeah. the idea that Timmy can come from that lifestyle and I can come from, you know, addiction and prison Powerful like that. Like. But, but that you can actually go on and still go, do good things your life when you get out with the right supports, the, the level fives, the level threes yeah. that you do, the junior sort, the, these yeah. are all beneficial and they help you when you when you grow so anybody can you know you can go through traumas like what you've went through you know with the passing your kids timmy with his mother um mm. but you, we, we can get through them it's not the end of the world you yeah. know you well i think the fact that you can give a pathway to people like yeah you, you can show yeah. them you know a, a uh, very achievable pathway as well very achievable pathway yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. yeah. exactly but 
I won't keep it for too long more, right. but I just wanted to finish up on um since you went to politics, no, I'm not giving you all the credit now, like yeah. but there's after being a tremendous amount of change in Irish society since the mid eighties to where we are now in twenty twenty two. If you were to look back and you were to pick maybe three or four you know of the biggest um achievements as of Ireland as opposed to Michael Martin and Fianna Fáil. But yeah. I, I, I would probably say the smoking man is probably one of them. Do you know, the um, same-sex marriage would probably be another. But there's have to be so many, isn't there? There has. And I look at it at a bigger level. I'd say, first of all, the, the fact that we're all living longer. Mm. Yeah. Stand back from but Irish people were dying too young mm. in the 50s, the 60s and the 70s. Like road accidents, I was looking at a statistic in that book. There. I think there was about 458 and 98 dying on roads. It's down to below 130. It's still too many. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. So that whole thing around that sort of health outcomes, apparently from hospitals on it, but standing yeah. back, we're living healthier and we're living longer. Yeah. Like, and that's what we need to keep at. We're, we're taller. <laughs> I think we're much more tolerant mm. and liberal mm. as a people. Mm. Uh, and I think the, the, the Eighth Amendment and the um, marriage equality has taught us that. Mm. That whole idea of diversity and um, there's difference and you must tolerate mm. difference. And when you look at what's going on in some countries, uh, authoritarian countries now, like I agree with Biden, I think it is that the struggle in the modern era is authoritarianism versus democracy and old-fashioned values of freedom of speech and all of that. That's where I think the big battleground is like. Yeah. And we in the country here, we have something good going here and we yeah. need to keep that going. Yeah. And what I worry about at times is there, there can be intolerances develop. Even mm. with those who think they're modern, Attack, yeah. uh, you know, uh, through an over, an over exuberance of sort of political correctness to say you you, you can't say that. Or you can, you know, know, we need to be tolerant of people. Like people who yeah. make mistakes in their lives. You hear where that all went. You know, when you look at your prejudices and look yeah. at your hang-ups, even though you might feel ashamed of them, they just they just leave you go. Like you're just gone then. And mm. you know, these days, whether a guy or woman rings up, it makes no odds. Where we're not surprised. You know, um, they're. The majority who come in are women and are young women, but there's still quite a lot of men coming in, especially after COVID, where you'd have maybe men in their forties, fifties who might have been abusive children who are um, hardworking men who used to being busy and now they weren't busy and they were going off their game and mm. remembering stuff that happened. You know, mm. how do you deal with that then when it's a man? You know, as 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 being a female, how do you deal with a man coming in saying that he's after been raped twenty years ago? How do you comfort him? Do you have a male within the... And a lot of them want women because they've yeah. been abused by a guy. Okay. I mean, we do have really, you know, good male counsellors outside who we can refer to if that's what they want. But a lot of them at this start want to talk to women. And sometimes, you know, very few people want to go back into detail about what happened or back into remembering every bit of it. And that's the fear, I think, that if they come in, they'll have to go way back into it. But they don't. It's just about how it affects them, how they can move on. And the two big things that keeps them stuck is... um feeling guilt and feeling shame. Mm. You know, the guilt would be, I shouldn't have done this, um, I should have done things differently, or the shame would be maybe what the abuser said when they raped them, you know, you really like this, or you really love it, or you really want it. Or say when children are abused, you could have a young girl who, she could only be six or seven, you know, mm. and mm. he gives her toys, or he gives her braces, or he gives her a comic, and she nearly feels when she grew up like she prostituted herself. Yeah. And it's kind of, different for guys because they nearly feel worse in a different way because I remember um, one of the counsellors saying about one guy that was in and she really felt there was still something he wasn't saying like he'd done a lot of stuff and he came in because um, like say a girl will come in because she say I'm a lovely guy I really want to be with him but I can't be close even though he's nothing like the abuser mm -hmm. she's stuck there somewhere so we help her kind of around 
her relationship, her intimacy, that kind of a thing. And I remember he was saying he had a lovely relationship um, and then he had a child and he was afraid to touch the child in case he'd become an abuser because you have this myth, this bullshit that goes around that if you're abused, then you would be an abuser and that's rubbish. Like he had no traits of abusing. And what happened when he was young, um, the abusers know what they're doing. They know how to get bodies to react to things. So I suppose this young guy, when he's a boy, um, was getting aroused. So when he looked back, he said, sure, I was aroused, therefore I was taking part in it. Yeah. And he was a child. So, you know, the way your head, you get mixed up in your head about, because the abuser will mix you up in your head. He will say, it's your fault. He will say you're bold. He will say... Um, you're evil. They don't even have to threaten you. They just mm. know. They just know. You know they just the, do it. And, so and that's that's how you help one guy yeah, by yeah. kind of helping him really work through it. Really, who is the abuser here? And he left feeling so free, left feeling so free mm. that he was able yeah. to bath his daughter and enjoy time and whatever. And and that's what I mean. If you can help people with the guilt and the shame, that's it. And that's all he probably wanted for, from life. I think that's all, all he wanted. They want, yeah, yeah. yeah. There was a. Did you ever watch The Keepers on Netflix? It's yeah. a documentary about. It's an, an Irish American school. I think it's in um, yeah. Baltimore. Yeah. But one of the girls was being abused, but um, she orgasmed when she was only a child. Now, exactly. And she grew up then, believing like that she brought it on herself and that. But like it really messed up her head later yeah. in life. But like she she didn't know what was going on in her body. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. But the, the manipulation was very deep, and it just kind of remember when when you said it there that 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 guy got rose and how that that might mess with your head later in life. Yeah, and they know how to do it. Like the abusers know how to do it. And then, you know, in sexual abuse, one thing I will find over the years we. Ireland, we were great for covering things up. Like, you know, mm. I mean, I find the years in the centre is about uncovering. It's uncovering, like, say, back then, it was rape of girls. So we only thought about um, bringing people to court and accompanying them that way. And then I think in 84, the first person came in who had been abused as a child. And then there was a state of fear programme that um, opened up all the institution abuse of boys and in institutions and girls in different places. And then, you know, lately we're kind of more involved in working people who've been trafficked for sexual exploitation in Ireland. So it's all the time uncovering stuff, but at least Ireland is uncovering it. We need to do more, but back then it wouldn't have been covered. It was been covered up. So that does give me hope. Mm. You know, things are being opened up a bit more. Yeah. Um we had uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kork on the podcast last week and he wrote a book around how the body responds to trauma. And one in his book, he talks about uh, people who have been sexually abused as children later in life find the heart to be intimate. But he, mm -hmm. he gave this um, example of, he names her Marilyn in the book. Mm -hmm. Marilyn finds it very difficult to have relationships. Mm -hmm. So she could she was going up with this guy anyway and things were going great. They went back to her house. They did nothing now but they slept together and she woke up in the middle of the night and he was asleep but he turned around and touched off her innocuous now and she lost the plot and yeah. attacked him but he was saying like in traumatised people the body doesn't understand the difference between something like that and danger and it just reacts as if it's danger and even internally the body can you know see an innocuous event like that and attack its own body as well and it, it mm -hmm. can manifest in a chronic illness yeah. you know but 
um, very difficult to work through and I'm sure you come across it a lot. Yeah, because the body does remember. Even yeah. like, you know, you could have somebody who's been raped and then she might be starting to go out again um, and she might be in a place which is nothing like where, you know, the event happened and all of a sudden she gets a panic attack and there's a body kind of remembering there's some kind of danger there. And then sometimes they think they're losing it. So mm. that's kind of where we can help them out and support them and, you know, showing them, like you say, really something physically even showing them how the mind and body works. It's not always about mm. how you're feeling because you feel shit. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, I've no time for spending hours and hours with people just going around in that cycle. If there's some way of showing them, well, we know you feel really awful, but this is another side of of, of it that you can't control. This is mm. how your body's reacting. Sometimes that can be a massive relief yeah. for people that they think they're not going yeah. mad. You know. So Gabor's piece is compassionate inquiry. So that's okay. a, a lot of Gabor's work is about coming into the body and yeah. kind of like you're saying, they're noticing not just the story because that's in our heads, mm. but what's the emotional reaction? What do you notice in your body? So, you know, someone might come in and come in and say, you know, I'm, I'm really triggered by my partner and um, they, they're driving me daft. And very quickly, Gabor will ask them to come into the body and notice what's happening for you. So I notice my chest is tight, my breath is shallow and my tummy is kind of wrenching. And you might ask them, what's the emotion behind that? And you say, oh, I feel sad or I feel angry. So it's about going below the story, as you say, because mm-hmm. we can get caught up in these narratives and just going around in circles and judgments and sort of just caught in the head and leaving the body. And, you know, it's not directly Gabor related, but my belief is that our emotions are a collection of physical sensations in the body. So again, fear, maybe it's tightness in the chest, constriction in my throat, it's different all the time. Mm. But I give it a name. So I say I'm fearful or I'm scared. And then I go to my head to try and figure out how I'm scared and how I can not be scared. So I've gone from my body to my head and I've, I've left my body basically and I'm living in my head. Sometimes the, all the fear needs is just a bit of space to like take a couple of breaths in that place, allow it to be where it is rather than pushing it down. You know, a lot of emotional suppression um, and then maybe working with the fear again, staying out of the head and asking that fearful part of me, what do you want me to know? If you had a voice, what would you say? So Gabor's stuff kind of ties in with that, linking the body and mind, mm. seeing again, the body keeps the score. You know, we hear this yeah. language, but it, it's, it's very true. And then going back to your youth and, and, and recognizing that any of the beliefs that we hold, particularly inner critic, that's a lot of inner child stuff. Usually the things we tell ourselves about ourselves that we don't like, I don't fit in. I'm not enough. I'll never be enough. Generally, we heard that somewhere along the line and internalized it. Um, the first time I've yeah. ever heard of inner critic and uh, the, the inner child was when I was in the treatment center in Carlow in uh, 2013 in St. Francis Farm. And we got a seminar from one of the counselors. He used to do um, seminars every Friday afternoon. You know, you'd have a lot of intense groups Monday to Friday, but on a Friday afternoon, it was like a cup of tea seminar. It was usually entertaining, but it was on uh, transactional analysis which is a theory by Eric Bourne, mm-hmm. psychologist. Blind by the two good podcasts on tra- transactional analysis. And he really explains it whether or not I'm going to. But he, basically it was like, uh, we respond to things from three different levels, the critical parent or the afraid child or the adult, mm. right? And we go around, you know, like to go about your day-to-day business, you need to be in your adult side of your brain, you know? Because mm. like you're, if you if you go into... Um, work right and you've um you've an authoritative boss or a strict boss or a cranky boss and he starts talking don't you giving out you you if you go into that child 
you're going through a tantrum or something like that. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So like if he's in the critical parent and you go into the scared child or the tantrum child, that, that's not going to work. So if he's there, you have to try and stay at it level. So, and we go about HR route or we go about it that way, you know? But um, the best example I can give, like it's grand being in the adult mode when you're in work, but you know, if you go home for Christmas dinner, Right, and you and you have to do all this personal development, and you're like, right, I have to do my EMDR, all these trainings. I'm not going to get caught up in the dynamics at home, but you know, as soon as you open that door, go and sit down that kitchen table, your sister is next to you, your brother is yeah. there, your mum is there, your dad is there. You will go into that role of the tantrum child, and she'll go into the role of the strict parent, and you've no control over it. <laughs> and it's only afterwards when you leave, you're like, fucking hell. Do you yeah. know what I mean? But that's basic response, you know, but the inner critic was the, the one, the point I wanted to talk about was I thought about inner critic and the inner critic I thought was just me, was just like, that was who I was, mm. you know, don't take off your jacket, everybody's going to look at you, look at the stadia, um, don't be talking, you're not even going to be able to speak, you know, that's what I thought I was, but when I heard that, that's the inner critic and you can get control over that, that was huge for me, because mm. then it began to think like, that's just a part of me, but it's, that's not who I am. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then just it's to, not even a, it's actually not even a part of who you are. But you know, when it's, in addiction, it's when, conditioning. When you've, no, when you've been bullied or when you're in addiction and all mm. the stigma and stuff like that, that's a very loud part of you. Yeah. Mm. But as you get a little bit better in yourself, mm. you can get a kind of more control over, can't yeah. you? It's, it's about noticing, isn't it? Pat? Yeah, and I think I think another piece that I've learned is you know we can have a tendency to want to get rid of these parts because you say Jesus this is holding me back and so we try to almost cut off a part of ourself when in reality it's about welcoming them back and kind mm. of getting to know them so asking my inner critic what are you afraid is going to happen if you disappear and they might say well geez you're going to push yourself out there Pat and people could make fun of you oh, okay that makes sense that's why you're keeping me mm. back a little bit is there a way I can make you feel safe and I'll speak to that part to myself and they'll yeah. say okay well Maybe take off your jacket and yeah. just go up the room and put it back on if you feel comfortable. So I think um, mm. it's almost negotiating with ourselves. And and just another quick piece on on you mentioning like the different parts, the the, the wounded part, the wounded child, or mm. the adult. Or what's been really interesting for me the last couple of months in studying is again this mind body connection. Is that when we're in a stress state, uh, when I'm experiencing stress in my body, so fast heart rate, shallow breath, tension in my muscles, when I'm picking up cues of danger, and that could be anything from my ex walking into the room to a smell of smoke and yeah. thinking there's a fire. Anytime my body feels stressed, positive thinking is almost a waste of time because the body is informing my mind yeah. that we're in trouble here. So to get into that adult part, I have to come into my body first, mm, yeah. wasting my time trying to think myself positive we've yeah. tried to think out think anxiety so slow breathing feeling my feet on the ground looking around me for signs of safety and when i'm safe in my body my mind can go and yeah. open you know there's something about us that the addict doesn't let themselves in on Mm. You know, like I, I'm, I'd be addicted to tobacco. I yeah. spent from 18 to about 33 or so smoking tobacco. So I'm, I really know about addiction mm. from that. And I know how easy it was to fool myself into thinking, sure, I'm not addicted at all, or mm. it's mm. okay. What am I doing? Just having a cigarette. And that's present in all addiction. I mm. think there's a part of us 
that doesn't really wake up to the full reality of addiction. We keep kind of making excuses about it or letting ourselves off the hook about it mm. or minimizing it and all the things mm. we used to call denial. And people don't really see that. Even haven't been through treatment, people like the first thing people do after they go out of treatment in some cases is drink or use relapse. drugs. Relapse, we mm. call it, yeah. And it's because they still haven't got the full picture. Mm. They still haven't seen that there's something about the addiction will live on in them mm. and will keep prodding at them and mm. suggesting to them it's okay. What's the problem? Mm. Go, it's go called ahead. stinking thinking. I love. They call that stinking thinking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That that. And so your brain isn't fully in on the picture on what the addiction mm. is really like, and it can take people a lot of doom and gloom before they. I've wake up to that as they call it an awakening in the 12 step fellowship mm. and multiple attempts yeah. at, at it as well like multiple attempts multiple yeah. treatment centers multiple yeah. sponsors and yeah. all, like, very rarely would you just in my experience yeah. anyway would people just go to treatment and then that's it there's no hiccups <laughs> along the way yeah. it's nearly it's everybody wants process. to test the water again yeah. I'll, I'll be able to use differently this time yeah. do you know uh, another very important uh, factor around that relapse period is as well if your thinking starts to tell you right that it should go back out and this works across the board with every addiction it was very easy to give it up this time this is the yeah. money mm. we'll give it up again just yeah. go back out for another day or two and you'll be grand and we'll, we'll give it up again and we'll be fine that's right that's a part of that sticking taking pro yeah. process where the mind comes at you it's just it's just it's so conniving mm -hmm. the mind I was at that period you now just the day I was going into prison my mind was telling me ah sure go in and get a load of drugs before mm. you go in and like I was mm -hmm. saying no one answered the phone anyway, thankfully mm -hmm. but it wasn't until afterwards I mm -hmm. realised like mm -hmm. it was the same form of thinking because mm -hmm. I said I go in I get stoned and I come back off it again mm -hmm. you know that was never going to happen I go in there I get stoned and I continue the problem is when people Sometimes people go back out there and they never come back. Exactly. They don't come Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They either they might die of an overdose or they might just live on yeah. miserably. Yeah. I might find it very hard to get back. So yeah. the, the shame of it all. But mm -hmm. how has tabulation evolved over the last twenty five years that you've been there for? Mm -hmm. um, big evolutions have been the whole um, secondary treatment programs. You know the fellowship houses and renewals where we're realizing that four weeks wasn't long enough for a lot of clients, especially the younger ones mm. and the ones who were, you know, what we call poly addicted or had multiple addictions and had all sorts of other challenges um, like mm, education hadn't been a success. Uh, hadn't been good training for for employment, hadn't been good employment opportunities, um, coping maybe with family of origins, addictions or other mm. kind of traumatic events that that impaired their ability to cope with life successfully on a day to day basis. And we call them complex needs. Now, when we look at the national protocols for drug and alcohol services and you're looking at a comprehensive assessment, you've got 10 fields or whatever it is where you're, you're, you're getting a picture of what every different part of a person's life is like. And as we, as time went on, we realized, gosh, these people have huge needs in in many areas of their lives. And what's the point in giving someone 28 days of 
of um, treatment in Tabor Lodge and then sending them back to very precarious accommodation situations or sending them back into a family where there's alcoholism uh, that is active and or sending them back into an area where where the the local culture is um, for a lot of alcohol to be consumed or a lot of drugs to be available. Yeah. So we had to start developing longer um, treatment options for people and also seeing treatment as a kind of a, a stepping stone toward more independent living for people. I'm in the bedroom and the day went out and she called me down as wife and she said they're going out to batter some fella. That was standard. That was, that was yeah. weekly things. I mean, that, that, that wasn't anything that you'd be like sitting there shocked because that happened to me all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they came back and had me, a, like, I'd seen guns. But what happened, I mean, I'd be hiding the guns in the field. They'd be telling me, hide this, hide that. Like, the field was full of heroin, full of money, full of guns, full of cars, full of bikes. It was full, everything, everything, you name it, was in them fields. I knew them fields like the back of my hand. I was in them fields at two, three, four, five in the morning with torches on my head, with infrared goggles, with a dog with me, sometimes by myself and the lashing the rain, freezing cold, he'd send you out. And that's what you had to do. And and I'd done it, I'd done all that stuff, but when he came back after, hand me the gun and told me to run up to the field and hide it, I knew there was something, something, I knew there was something bad after happened. But when I came back, and they told me what they were after doing. And then it didn't really hit me until they told me to check the teletext. And then when I checked the teletext and it says, a man has been shot dead outside Clover Hill Prison. And he says to me, shout without reader. Kenny said, shout without reader because Thomas can't read. So I shout without reader and I said, it didn't say he died force or force, it said a man has been shot outside Clover Hill Prison. Mm. And then they were panicking, saying, what if he's not dead? What if he's not dead? And then I checked another teletext. There was only two. There was RTE and TV3 at the time. And then I checked the other one. I think it was TV3. I might have been called something else, but it was 3. It was definitely yeah. the 3 channel. And I said, a man has died outside of Clover Hill Prison after being shot. And they were bouncing around the kitchen, clapping, high-fiving, cheering, whacking Jack Daniels over, smoking gear on the, on the foil, sniffing lines of coke. Then they brought me in and started threatening me, t- telling me if I ever told anybody what they do to me, what they do to me family. I was terrified, like, and I'm not going to sit here and say I wasn't because I was. Mm. And then they gave me the gear, the, the letters, and told me to chop them up and burn them in the stove. And then I wasn't doing that right, you'd be shouting, you're doing it wrong, so and so. But then after that, everything got so worse because what he was timing me. He started, like, he brought me to the field and he had a pump action shotgun and he used to make me stand in the field and shoot beside me head or shoot over me. It's not to, to make me scared, like to, mm. just to show him, show me, like, and then he keeps saying, look, I've done it once and I'll do it again. And then the, the abuse got worse. Like he kept bringing me down to the shed and beating me and abusing me more. And it just got, everything got so much. It was like he was obsessed with me because he told me it was like he got obsessed with me then. Like, what he would do is he'd bring me out in the car and he would time the garage. There was a garage up the back of Roadstone and he would time me from the house with him driving 
to the garage and back and then he would say to me so that took me say seven eight minutes so when he said to me go out and come back and if i'm not back in that seven or eight minutes as soon as you go in like you're getting a sewer all across your back or the digging the face like because he'd have to time it everything was time because he thought i was telling people stuff mm. he was getting paranoid mm. the drugs were he was freaked like because he had murdered your man he kept thinking i was going to tell somebody like and i just couldn't take it anymore what was the timeline between the murder and and you have haven't you having to go into the, the guards at this stage? I think about three weeks. Three weeks. What happened? I couldn't get you. I couldn't get away. Like, yeah. who do I go to? Yeah. How do I go to the guards? And I was afraid they were going to ring him and say, "Well, we have him down here saying you murdered somebody." Then I was dead. Like, but the only smart thing I done was when I hid the gun. I never told them where I hid the gun. And that was the only smart thing I ever done because I don't know what subconsciously I must have just it wasn't like I planned it. I always hid the, the there was there was three fields and I hid the smack and the money in one field and the guns in the other field. But for this one time for some reason I went to the tour field and I put the murder weapon in the tour field. Mm. Something in me just told me just to hide it there. Like I don't know why I hid Can it. Can you there. remember that murder, Nicola? When it happened, were you reporting on that? Yeah, I remember. I don't remember. Look, I don't remember it sort of significantly. Yeah. Um, I had no intimacy with it or whatever. But the fact it was right outside the prison stands yeah. out, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And then the trial was the fact that, obviously, when it came to trial, Joey subsequently did escape that home and he went to the police and he brought them and they found the murder weapon. You asked how much money he was making, Kenny, at the time, Brian Kenny. I think there was about 200 or 50,000 found buried in the fields alone opposite the house who's making a huge amount of money um, Joey went on to give evidence against both him and Thomas Hinchin and they were convicted of murder it was before a jury mm. and um, they were convicted of murder and sent away so um, that was a significant because he was the youngest state witness mm. to give evidence like that you know they're in protection obviously they go into witness protection once mm. they give their evidence they're signed yeah. out of witness protection and they're sent off into the world alone that's fine for an older individual with family yeah. maybe around them. Yeah. But Joey was so young and without all those skills that you maybe learn before you go out yeah, into the world just alone. Just a child. Basically, he yeah. said it there himself. He was obviously just a child because he never had an opportunity to grow and mm. to become the person that he was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. you know nobody, nobody was minding you. Like, you know, you think of like it, it's like Timmy's eleven year old. Mm. There's just nobody minding him. Nobody playing with you. I run, I run ex experience like sport or girlfriends, boyfriends or going out, you know, clubs or you clubs, you know, mountain bikes, you know, stuff that children should be doing. Mm. Like you missed all that part of your life, which is sad. Do you know what I mean? And I think about like what other children out there experiencing this today, you know? But like um, for, for you to come through it. Um, so when that murder happened, you know, when it was really bad, it was bad now the whole way. But like when things got intense in terms of his possession of you, what kind of relationship had you got with your mother at the time? Had you any communication with the family? No, not really. My ma came to try it. My ma came up once when I wasn't there. My ma came up to come. My ma came up to get me back because she hadn't seen me. And I wasn't there. Mm. And his partner was there. And my ma was like, I haven't seen Joseph. Is everything all right? And she said, yeah, and, or whatever. And I wouldn't see my family, but very rarely I'd see them. When I seen them, you just, you played the game. You said everything was all right. And 
you never you never said anything you would you, you just lied like yeah and that was the way it was it was just it was that that was the cycle you you just told them everything was okay and i'm happy and i'm up there walking and i'm making money and you never yeah. you never said anything like, you, you just the fears of you like yeah because you're thinking of what's going to happen to them like it was yeah. like even the night when i went to the police he turned up at the house like with a big can of petrol outside my house for a lighter off threatening to burn the house down if i didn't come back like so when i was in the police station like he was ringing the phone he actually was admitting what he done on the phone when i was in the police station like i think we 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 met one the with one of the guards that he's in the podcast todd he's the main investigator of the murder and he'll tell you like he was sitting in front of me taking a statement kenny was saying i want me gun back and like, i was what i'm gonna do to you and then he went to court and said i'm not guilty yeah. Do you understand? Yeah. It wasn't like I'm making this stuff up. This stuff was all in, from his phone to my phone, and they weren't turning the phone off. The guards were like, let him keep texting. Like there was hundreds that just kept ringing and ringing and ringing and messages and messages, and it was just constant. Like it was. Did the guards treat you well when you first went to the station? In in the beginning, they were brilliant. I could never have asked for anything more. Like they were they were compassionate and they were like I I was I was. I was skinny, like I was, I was, you could see my ribs, I was mm. black and blue. I was One of the things. Well, Irene, we enjoyed that point. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I was fragile, like I was skinny, I, I hadn't, like I was strung out, like. Most, yeah. mo most fellas only kind of break their teeth in the drug game about that age. Mm. You know, like you're already after being in 10 years at this stage, well, eight years at this stage. Yeah. A sad image and the it's, witness, it is, it's, the book it's, and the podcast is when, no, when, um, when they raided his house mm. and they went up to your room and there was like, there was the bed and there was a chair and there was no toys or magazines or radio. Or, there was nothing there to say that a young person lived in this room, you know? Mm. And that was, you know, you had no belongings to take with you, stuff like that. It's a very sad image, you know? Does that make you feel sad hearing that from someone else? It didn't at the time. It, it didn't, it didn't. I felt embarrassed at the time. I never knew it was a, sad. I didn't know it was sad at the time, but I'll mm. never forget how embarrassed I was when the guard said it to me. When, when they took me, because what happened is when they took Kenny out of the house, they brought me back. And they, because they needed to take pictures of me in the house with all the evidence, with the guns, with the money, with the drugs. And they took me up to my room and they says, where's your stuff? And I said, what stuff? And he was like, they were like, like where's your thing? Like, I said, I don't have anything. I just have what I have. Mm. That was it. How do they approach you for witness protection? Like, what what kind of conversations do they have? What What's the offer they give you in return for your evidence, you know? Do well, they, do they make false promises or how do they sell it to you? Well, see, there's a, there's a difference. There's a couple of ways of witness protection. Mm. You either... A lot, a lot most people go to witness protection if the guards have something wrong. Mm -hmm. they say listen if you let me off with this i've done this if you if i tell you this and you let me off with this i'll make i'll go to court and give evidence against someone so like what's in the courts at the moment it's that kind of a situation yeah so they're approached yeah they're, they're yeah so that's how it works where with me it was different because i didn't i hadn't done anything and there was no criminal i, I hadn't got any criminal convictions yeah. i've been arrested probably I don't know how many times, but I've drug searches brought in, drug searches, nothing on me. I've been chased by the police. Because that's what we were involved in. Like That's what he had me doing. Like.
I was a quiet young fella. Mm. I still am quiet. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, definitely. I am quiet. I always was quiet. Yeah. Um, but the tablets and the alcohol, mm-hmm. you know, just, I suppose it changed my character, you know what I mean? And I've done, done stuff that I brought up a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. Um, I was out of control, you know. Yeah. It was like blanking out. And it was never about, you know, have, using socially, you know, have a bit of crack. You know, it was... There was there was a part of that, but it was always using to get flattened. Mm-hmm. It was like getting cans, but getting a bottle of porno mm-hmm. on the side. Yeah, you know. Yeah. My dad used to say to me, "You're the only man in Cork to wake up in the morning and take ten sleeping tablets." <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the way it was yeah. back then, though. And you're around then for the day, complete like a zombie. Yeah, but you know yeah. what it was? I was so in, I was quiet and I was shy mm. and I was so insecure. That if I didn't have all them tablets in me, mm. I couldn't function as a mm. human. I couldn't, I couldn't go to the shop. I was brutal around women. Mm. Do you know if I was getting attention from a girl, yeah. I wouldn't know how to cope with it unless I was throwing over my head. Mm. And then it's like you're grand. Do you know what I mean? It, the tablets gave me everything that I didn't have. Do you know mm. the, the confidence, the self esteem, the all this stuff. Do you know when you're taking Valium and or and stuff like that. You don't give a fuck about anything no. like that. Like, oh, no. It's just like, this is how I am to hate me or leave me. Full, yeah. of, full of confidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. and I always chased that. Yeah, yeah. I always chased that. And um, But yeah, but getting back to the, the prison thing, uh, up in A3. Oh yeah, I'll go back to the guy that I, you know, we took his car. Okay. Or looking back now. Yeah, yeah. I think it would have been very beneficial if I had to meet that person mm-hmm. across the table like this and for him to tell me how, what my actions had the impact on him, mm-hmm. you know, about how he works hard for it. It was his pride and joy. I think that would have had a way more impact on me than the, the prison sentence, really. Mm-hmm. But we never, like, living in an area like that, like, we didn't have nice cars and we didn't have, you know, nice things like that. Mm-hmm. So we never had any connection with the people that did. Yeah. And, uh, like, if we were treated harshly and we treated them harshly in return. That was just the way of the world. And you sometimes you, you get it, and sometimes you receive it. And I think that's a very, very valuable point what you made there, you know, um, confronting the person that you hurt. Yeah. You know, and, and it's something that that a lot of people do in recovery, you know. Um, yeah. They try to make amends to people that they hurt during their, um, their addiction, alcoholism, whatever it is, yeah. you know, and... Sometimes people accept it, you know, and sometimes people don't accept it, you know. Mm. But you've often said something to me, you know, um, what you're doing at the moment is one way of making amends to your community and, yeah. and people that m- you may have came across in your lifetime and yeah. hurt or whatever, you know. And, and, and I know you and I know you'd always, if someone approached you and something happened in the past, I know you'd always, you know, put your hands up and... Yeah. Say, listen, I apologize, you know, like myself, you know, um, yeah. which I would have yeah. apologized like, last week. D- d- exactly. Yeah. And the guilt and the shame of it all really mm. shows, like, the guilt and the shame showed me that I wasn't, that deep down I was actually a good person, you know, but I was doing things that weren't good. Yeah. And I was hurting people and it didn't sit with me at all, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, when I come into recovery, I was able to go around to some people that I felt, you know, would have been safe for me and safe mm-hmm. for them to, for it to happen. But sometimes I did things that I probably can't remember. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes I did things to people that it wouldn't be best for me to mm-hmm. approach them. So then how do I make amends? It's, it's all in a kind of a general way. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to help people 
Um, so I kind of got a job helping people and do this, do you know what I mean? So yeah. if there's still people out there that's hurt, I'm wholly apologetic. Okay. You know? um, but just know like that I wasn't a cold person, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Or I'm not a cold person. I was maybe mm-hmm. under the influence of substances and, um, you know, but there was a lot of guilt and there's a lot of regrets mm-hmm. there as well. Yeah. You know, you were talking about the football thing. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I lived to play football yeah. when I was a child. But I didn't kick a ball between the ages sixteen and thirty two. Yeah. Like that's sixteen years of my life where and now looking back, this is probably the one big regret I have. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd played football and it's not about playing I'd love to have been played AOL, mm-hmm. you know. But just to have a career and the camaraderie and you know, to get the Turner's Cross all day, I wish to have played in Turner's Cross, mm-hmm. you know. But I, I gave up all my my good years, my athlete years, let's say, for drinking drugs in prison. Yeah. You know, and I in prison, like I get into the shape of my life. You know, I could go into prison nine or ten stone, seven or eight weeks down the line playing handball, weightlifting, playing soccer. I've my family back in my life. You know, I've no debts and mm. I'm drug free. I had a social life because I was mingling with friends in there. I felt more freedom in prison than I did on the street. Yeah, because when I got in the street, to me, strung out again. No family around me, no friends around me. Nobody wanted to be around me. I didn't want to be around anybody. And chained to a chemist for the methadone, chained to one or two dealers, chained to the doctor for the script. The highlight of my week was going to the chemist. Yeah. You know, a very, very pathetic existence. Mm-hmm. But when I went to prison, all that was gone. And even though I was in a tiny cell with somebody else and a piss pot in the corner, yeah. I felt more freedom in there because yeah. I had my Keep family safe. back. I was safe and I was happy and I was, you know, be able to watch the football on the weekend and go to the gym mm. and, you know, just have a life with people because addiction was very isolating for mm. me, you know, um, especially when I moved on. They were, they were, they were good things because they worked at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're wonderful things. These are things we all human beings want. Now, that means that the addiction, it's nonsense to talk about addiction as a disease because what kind of a disease gives you security and uh, comfort and self-esteem and belonging? It's also ridiculous to talk about it as a choice because who chooses to be insecure and anxious and uncomfortable mm-hmm. and isolated and, and uh, emotionally right up? So these are all states of emotional pain and addiction soothes the pain. So that's my mantra under addiction is not why the addiction, but why the pain? Now, why the pain? You just told me about your childhoods. You told me that as you were growing up uh, in your family of origins, things happened to you that robbed you of security, that robbed you of genuine self-esteem, that robbed you of um, comfort, that robbed you of your God-given right to belong to the human race, uh, that robbed you of uh, confidence. So that's the trauma. The trauma is the loss of all these good qualities that every Mm -hmm. child should have. And so they're the traumatic events, but the trauma then is the wound that we sustain, that we then keep trying to soothe all our lives. And addictions really are a way of soothing the pain induced by early trauma. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because when I was around 17, 18, I had a suicide attempt 
And mm-hmm. after that, I found benzodiazepines. And even though I was, uh, my life was destroyed on benzodiazepines and I was <coughs> going in and out of prison and hospitals, I wasn't trying to kill myself. You know? So in a kind of a paradoxical way, they helped me de- get over that lo- part of my life where I was suicidal. Then the drugs helped me through it, even though I was you know, in and out of prison. But it got me through that point in my life. There's a lot of people who are driven to the point of despair. And as one very famous writer said to me, drugs saved my life. Yeah. Then they almost destroyed me. So the, mm-hmm. that's, but, but initially they, the, the, the addictions, again, to whatever it is, whether it's drugs or behaviors, it comes along to soothe some kind of a deep pain and deep despair. And the source of that deep pain and deep despair is childhood trauma. Yeah. I would have been quite similar to James as well, you know. Um, I would have used substances at a really young age. And I can really relate to what that your, your friend, that author, said. Because when I look back at my own life in hindsight, if I didn't have those substances or drugs in my life to take me away from what was going on inside my head yes. and the fe- feelings and emotions that I was going through that I wasn't able to, to handle. And yes. um, I possibly looking back now, I don't know what I uh, like. What I could say, I possibly would have took my own life because that did come into my mind. But, um, or, or you might have turned to violence or something desperate, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so a lot of the people listening, if you're in jail, mm-hmm. You're being punished for your behaviors, maybe to do with drugs, maybe to do with violence. Um, but what you're really being punished for is how you were wounded as a child and how you weren't given a help to, to resolve that wound. I'm not yeah. saying that people aren't responsible and, and we have to be, but, but we have to understand for society to be responsible it means that we have to understand why people behave the way they do, and particularly why they say turn to drugs. Nobody, I've never met anybody addicted to drugs who woke up out of a happy life one Saturday morning and said, hey, my ambition is to become a drug addict. It wasn't like that. It's that people came across the drug and all of a sudden they felt like they've never felt before in their lives, uh, in a positive sense. You know, so we have to look at the sources of how they were deprived of that positivity earlier in life. And doesn't it? Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, doesn't it just uh, emphasize how pointless an exercise is of sending people uh, in addiction in and out of prison for short sentences for possession? Well, I worked in, I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and. in an area called the downtown east side, which is really North America's most concentrated area of drug use. I mean, you, if you walk down into those huge black blo- square blocks, you see people injecting and inhaling and selling and, you know. And, uh, and those people, it's like a revolving door. They go in and out of jail. Now, we call the prison system the correctional system, but it doesn't correct anything. It's a punitive system. It's not a correctional system. We also talk about rehabilitation, but very few people ever get rehabilitated because the wound, the trauma, 
that keeps driving their behaviors is never healed. It can be, but the neither the medical system nor the legal system understands the need to 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 heal the trauma. And so then it's a revolving door and, and people do detox in prison willy or nilly, but then they come out and within a couple of days they use it again. Very, that was my experience. And it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, if you're gonna lock people up, give them the rehabilitation treatment that they actually need. If you think you need mm -hmm. to protect society from certain behaviors, well, that might be fair enough. But why be punitive about it? Why not help people really heal? And that, that, that can be done. It, it doesn't need to be done the way we do it. You can protect society and you can also help people at the same time. And furthermore, um, it's a bit arbitrary, isn't it? Because uh, if you're like in most countries, say possessing heroin or cocaine is illegal, but possessing alcohol or cigarettes is not illegal. And alcohol and cigarettes kill a lot more people than heroin or cocaine ever do. I'm not saying cocaine or heroin should be sold in the streets or in the corner stores, but I'm saying that, um, but I'm saying that there's a real um, contradiction about the social attitude towards substances. Some substances that are far more lethal in the long term are permitted and profited on, profited off by respectable businessmen. Other drugs are forbidden and, 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 and people are sent to jail for possessing them. It doesn't make any sense. Mm. always caught up in my head I would have been an introvert person mm. you know always kind of inside always kind of the one looking out mm. at how everybody was and, and caught up in my own head as a young child you know um, so you would have been at a, at a young age you would have been a deep thinker yes and how was school at the time um, school was very very difficult you know uh, there's an awful lot going on at home and when I was in school I wasn't able to focus um, on what the teacher was talking about or anything. And I spent most of my time at the back of the class mm. or outside the principal's office or whatever. You know, it was difficult. Um, and later on, those of the effects um, yeah. showed. You know, and how, what way were your grades? Were you able to achieve academically in school? No, no. There was none. There was no such thing as... A grade, uh, I could barely, I couldn't read or write basically. Yeah. Know. And was there any additional support offered? Or? No, there was nothing. There was nothing. All there was now, I was kind of kept up in the assembly of the school or outside the principal's office or the end of the back of the class was there. Yeah. Was where I spent most of my time, you know. Yeah. And that, for a child, in my opinion, when I, uh, re uh, looking back in hindsight now, is probably one of the worst things you could do to a child's confidence and mm. self-esteem and things like that. It really kind of affected me. Um, they had taught me that I was no, not good enough, mm. you know. Um, and
and I went through my adult life always believing that I wasn't good enough, you know. Mm. So um Yeah, so you know when you were going through school then, yeah. did you complete your junior something leaving cert or how did that go? No. No, there was I when I hit the age of ten I would have went in the hop from school a lot. Mm. Um people from the area would know Hogan's Lane. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in Hogan's Lane, you know, and we would have went Hogan's to Lane and Ashes Boring. Yes. We would have uh, we were at the punk shop, selling out to the woman who owns the punk shop. <laughs> but we were robbing the old barn, I showed her shop and mm. tip backs and st- anything that we could get a bit of a stone off and, and so, so from a, just sorry to stop you, but from, so from a very young age you found you were looking for ways to get out of your head. Yeah. 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 Um there was a lot going on for me with my own head gems and I yeah. didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. So, um, uh, so you, you used the coping skills that's available to you and at that time it was to mm-hmm. fix nail varnish, solvents and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Like I grew up in a, a home where there was a single parent, you know, my mother, and she was unstable. Um, and there's other kids in the school, out the street then and they see this, like, there was a lot of bullying that I'm trying to say, you know, mm-hmm. um, there was a lot of bullying as well because we didn't have no anything, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there wasn't a lot of food there. There wasn't, there wasn't much of anything, you yeah. know, um, clothes, there was a lot of hand-me-downs, you know, and things like that. Yeah. It was like, we grew up in the eighties, James, the eighties mm-hmm. were tough times for, for a lot of families, you know. And if I can put some context there on our Cullen, Norton Heaney, Holly Hill, and even wider yeah. uh, city Northwest. There would have been housing estates built around sixties, seventies, yeah. when there would have been a lot of working class families put up here, maybe employed in Lullums, Fords, mm-hmm. um, Dunlops, and when the industry broke down, a lot of people became unemployed, and maybe the the jobs didn't reoccur in the eighties. Obviously, mm-hmm. with the big recession, so with a lot of big housing estates, maybe limited services at the time, mm-hmm. unemployment that breeds social problems. Yeah. So that's the context that you're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah, 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 it was like, I'm talking about my story and how bad it was for me, but in general, it was bad for everybody. It's just that we we had just a single parent and a parent that was yeah. unstable and, you know. Yeah. No, I just want to say one thing. Like, my mother done everything she could in her own power that yeah. she thought was possible for us as, as kids, you know. Um, it's just, there were difficult times, yeah. you know, for everyone and... You know, we made the best of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and I know your mother. You know, I grew yeah. up in that house. Yeah. Your mother used to be good friends with my mother. Yeah. And, you know, I seen her as a lovely lady, very good to me, mm-hmm. uh, very good for our sons, but obviously had her own issues and yes. her own difficulties, you know? Yeah. And everybody, you know, there's a context to everything. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And there's never anybody to blame. It's just about understanding your story, that's all it is. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of looking back and being able to identify what was going on at the time it helps you then to understand your behavior and how your outcomes became mm-hmm. negative let's say yeah. so when you finish school we're talking about there you created a kind of an angry demeanor mm-hmm. can you tell me more about that well what i created was um this angry look what it really was was a form of protection to keep people away keep keep people uh, at distance because mm. um, 
you know, there was, as I said earlier, there was a lot of bullying and, and things like that. And um, it, they were, it was tough for me for emotionally, you know. Um, I struggled as a teenager, you know. I, I did a lot of shit going on in my life that I didn't understand, you know. And there wasn't very much teaching to me growing up as a child. Um, you know, I had to learn everything really for myself um, in terms of how to behave and... Mm. Um, how to everything. You have the sensations in your body of feeling agitated, feeling scared, something eating away at you. A heart, I like to use Darwin's terms, heartbreak and gut wrench. And as we, when you experience the sensations, and so you go through life feeling uptight and feeling frozen and feeling agitated, and you want to stay in control. And one great way of getting in control is by taking something that makes those feelings go away. Mm. Uh, in some ways, becoming a drug addict is not all that different from going to a doctor who prescribes you pills. You just prescribe pills for yourself. If you do it yourself, you're a bad person. If the doctor does it for you, you're a good person. But at the end, the result's the same. These are chemicals that make you feel more capable of inhabiting the body that you live in. Do you know, you know in, in a ho- go on, Tim. You know, a child that has had a traumatic experience, right, and they do go into um, addiction at whatever age, in their teens or whatever, and they stop. And they're, when they're dealing with the trauma, when they get like when they have to deal, they go back into their childhood and they're starting to deal with it. Um, it can be very, very, very difficult for, for people to, to, to handle that. And, it's really and it's important difficult. to say that this is very, very difficult. Huh? Because first you start off, with a lot of trauma that leaves you feel feeling bad about yourself and bad about your body. And you medicate it with your drugs. And then the drugs are pretty good in pushing your things away. When you get off the drug, all that stuff comes back in greater force than the original stuff. So cleaning yourself up, as you guys have done, is always a major act of, of heroism almost. like. I admire everybody who does it because I have some pretty good sense of how extremely difficult it is to deal with all that internal discomfort in your body and that craving and feeling terrible about yourself and feel horrible in your body. These are it's really hard to become clean, as you guys know. In your book, um, I suppose in my experience when I was a young person. Um, I always kind of seeked out the dramatic situations like being in stolen cars, being in violent events, you know, ending up in prison and all that chaos and drama. And I know certain people, I work in drug and alcohol service, and I know certain people like that, their lives are full of drama. In your book, you talk about traumatized people feel numb and they seek out drama because it's the only time they actually feel alive. And that resonated with me. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, please? Yeah, so, you know, when you're traumatized, you do anything to somehow cope and to somehow feel alive. And so one thing you become probably fairly good at is to 
shut off your sensations in your body because it's also somatically based. So you work very hard on developing your capacity to not feel. But if you don't feel anything, you don't feel alive. And so you feel like a zombie. And then in order to overcome that capacity to not feel anything, you need to do something that's pretty extreme where your stress hormones get activated and you go like, I feel alive. Uh, so one of the great paradoxes about trauma is that one of the very first things that struck me working with veterans also is that they hated the war, but the only thing that makes them feel alive was doing warlike things. Uh, because then you, all your chemicals in your body start getting activated and you really become sort of a specialist in dealing with very, very scary situations. Uh, so you may, uh, I may become absolutely terrified being chased by the police. And you may go like, wow, how cool is that? People are shooting at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, spoke, you spoke about there, you did a lot of work with um, Vietnam veterans. Some, some who ha- would have committed some terrible acts, but you yeah. helped them to overcome them. Now, people, some people accessing this podcast might have stuff in their past that they may feel shameful about. But do you, do you believe people have an innate ability to make good and an innate ability to recover? Well, we yes, we do have an innate capacity to, to recover. But uh, particularly if you have done terrible things, uh, that issue of moral injury is a very, very difficult thing because at some point what you have done uh, may be worse even than has been done to you. And so how do you live with yourself knowing that you have done terrible things? Uh, it takes It's a very deep spiritual journey also of, of penitence and of uh, making repairs. So that's the self, self, self-step programs. Of course, we're very good at that already. That you need to make repair, you need to acknowledge the reality. And uh, facing what you have done is, is a tough thing, not only for, uh, for young male guys who do criminal things, but also yeah. for women who have been sexually abused. They may say, oh, uh, this happened to me, I didn't fight back. Or I love the guy who did this to me. And, uh, and they may actually unwittingly set themselves up for sexual violation. And that because on some level they may think like the only thing that I'm good for is to serve some guys sexual gratification because I'm no good anyway. Uh, so you get these very complex reenactment type situations where most people who haven't been traumatized, they wouldn't, they wouldn't want to do that. But uh, if it's what you grew up with, people go back to what's familiar or what is, over what is safe. So if you're familiar with danger and screaming and yelling, you're okay with screaming and yelling. You know, if I go to a place where people are screaming and yelling, I'm getting the hell out of there. Uh, I can't cope with that. But if that was something you grew up with, you may go, yeah, yeah, I know how to deal with it. I actually mm-hmm. like to get to a barroom brawl and kick some ass, you know. <laughs> like, I didn't want to kick ass in the bar, you know. Like, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah. different makeup. Yeah. Yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.